we will be continuing in our teaching series in James called Born Again Behavior. We have been working our way through chapter 2, which deals with the sin of partiality, showing favoritism. And the chapter is divided into three sections. Last Sunday, we examined section 2, where James exhorts his audience to fulfill the royal law. That's basically all of God's commands. And he warns them against lawlessness or breaking God's commands. He warns them about judgment. And he basically, toward the end of that little section, he calls them to repentance, to turn away from the favoritism, the partiality, the other sins that they were sort of um, involved with. He calls them to repentance back to godly conduct. Now, according to James's letter so far, we have a congregation, we're dealing with a congregation in the text here that was failing to remain steadfast under trials, we read about that in chapter 1, verses 2 and 3 and verse 12. We have a congregation that was not seeking God for wisdom. Uh, we read about that in chapter 1, verse 5. We have a congregation that was sort of shifting back and forth between belief and unbelief or trusting in God and not trusting in God. We read about that in chapter 1, verse 6. We have a congregation that was blaming God for its temptations Read about that in chapter 1, verses 13 to 15. We have a congregation that was, uh, by in part, not pursuing purity. Read about that in chapter 1, verse 21. A congregation that was not obeying Scripture, that's verse 22 of chapter 1. Not controlling its tongue, verse 26 of chapter 1. Not being impartial, chapter 2, verse 1. And not fulfilling the royal law by loving their neighbors as themselves, chapter 2, verse 8. In the third and final section of, of this chapter, um, chapter 2 that we're looking at, James does what, what any discerning and caring pastor would do at this point. He questions the legitimacy of, of this congregation's faith. And James, by doing this, he basically breaks a cardinal rule among many postmodern types, especially in this day and age, who believe that faith is totally personal, who believe that faith is totally subjective. Your faith is your faith. My faith is my faith. They don't have to be the same. My faith can be what I want it to be. In the postmodern types, they believe these things and they say these things, but they also say and believe that faith, of all things, is one of those things, personal faith, it's one of those things that's totally off limits. You are not permitted to challenge my faith, talk about my faith, describe my faith. And so by, by challenging the legitimacy of their faith, he breaks a cardinal rule among many today and throughout the church history, if you think about it. Over the years, I've encountered numerous so-called Christians who think that they think this way. They think that faith is theirs, and you can't say anything about it. You can't challenge it. And, and I've even been demonized a time or two for challenging them on their faith or questioning their faith. And they usually say things like, who are you to question my faith? Um, it's between me and Jesus. You need to go ahead and worry about your own faith. You need to focus on your own faith. You don't need to be concerned about my faith. There's been times where I've been called a Pharisee. That somehow, you know, Pharisees, if you, you study the Gospels and you see the Pharisees, that somehow they were the types that would question people's faith. We actually don't see them doing that anywhere. But I've been called a Pharisee. Fill the Pharisee, which I think is kind of funny. P and P, I guess. And yet the truth is that every Christian, every believer is scripturally authorized to lovingly challenge sinful behavior in the church and even question a person's faith when that person's con 
their conduct consistently contradicts their faith or their profession of faith. That, that's what it means uh, where Peter talks about judgment beginning in the house of the Lord. We are to judge matters within the church. And if we have brothers and sisters, they, they claim to be brothers and sisters around us and their lifestyles don't line up with their profession, it, it's our duty to, to lovingly challenge them and, and to question them. And why? To make ourselves feel really good about our behavior and all that and conduct? No, of course not, because we love them. This, this whole idea of, well, you, you can't challenge anyone's faith. You can't talk about people's faith. You can't, you can't say these things. He said something negative about his faith that's just so prevalent today. And this is precisely what James does in this next section. <laughs> and I like the teaching method James used. I think it's very brilliant. Does not come right out and say, what's wrong with your faith? I mean, I've done that. Maybe that's why I've been called a Pharisee. I think there's a problem with your faith. He never says anything like that. He doesn't say that I think you have false faith. I've even said that to someone, which probably isn't very sensitive. And I usually don't begin my conversations with people like that. That's after listening to them defend their poor behavior for two hours. Then I'm like, I don't even think you're saved. You know, which isn't sensitive. He doesn't come right out and, and say any of these sorts of things. Instead, he creates a hypothetical scenario that enables him to present his main point and then back up his main point, the main point of this very passage, this entire section. This hypothetical scenario enables him to come up with examples and to present examples that just bolster and build up this main point that he has here. And we'll, we'll learn about that as we move through the text, but... I've entitled this message, Faith That Works. Faith That Works. Please take your Bibles and turn to James chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 14 through 26. Once more, James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. This is the final section of chapter 2. Let's pray before we get to work. Father, we call upon your name now and we ask that you give us ears to hear, hearts to receive, um, a willingness to obey. We pray that you send the Holy Spirit in such power that he moves in us and brings about these things. We pray that you're glorified during this time. And we pray that you teach us about true saving faith, what it actually is like according to this text and according to the Bible. And, and my fear and yeah, anxiety is that there are people that I know who think they have true saving faith and yet don't. We pray that if there be anyone in this room, and I think there is, that you would reach them by your sovereign grace and give them that true saving faith. And for the rest of us, just remind us of what it is and empower us to have the kind of true saving faith that the Bible describes. It's a faith that works. It's a faith that produces works. Teach us today and be glorified during this time. We love you and pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's begin with the hypothetical scenario. We see it in verse 14. It basically sets the stage for the entire passage. James continues by saying, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? This is the million-dollar question. This is the question of all questions, if you think about it. In this hypothetical scenario, James presents a person who says he has faith, but he has no works. James is not presenting in this hypothetical scenario, he is not presenting a person who actually possesses true saving faith here. He is presenting one who claims to have true saving faith, 
but cannot back up that claim with works. Why? Because he has no works. He is a man who says he believes, but has no fruit. The Greek word for faith is pistis, and in this context, it represents belief in the basic tenets of the Christian faith. So this person claims to be theologically orthodox. If you were to walk this person that James is creating here, and this person probably existed in that congregation, if you were to walk this person through a checklist, like a theological checklist, they would very likely check yes on all of the boxes. For instance, sir, do you believe God exists? Yes, of course. Do you believe that God created all things, that he's a creator? He is the creator? Of course I do. Yes, check. Do you believe that sin entered the world through Adam and Eve and all people are sinners because of them and choice? Yes. Do you believe that Christ came into the world to save sinners through his death, burial, and resurrection? Of course I do. Yes. In this hypothetical scenario that James creates, the theological orthodoxy or the basic beliefs of this person is not in question. The issue has to do with that he has no works. This is a person who says he believes the Bible, but no works are coming through his life. Works is a great word in the Greek. It's ergon. And it sometimes is translated as deeds. So when you see the word works in James and the ESV, it may come up as deeds in other translations. Works and deeds, synonymous. The great question that we have now is that did James have any kind of particular works in mind as he's writing this? What works is he referring to? What ergon, what... What deeds could he possibly be talking to? Did he have something in mind? Of course he did. He was undoubtedly referring to the works he's already mentioned in his letter. For instance, we already covered some of them, the very things this church wasn't practicing, like remaining steadfast under trials. That's an actual fruitful work that comes through the life of someone with true saving faith. Or seeking God for wisdom. That's a work. That's a fruit. Steady trust in God. That's a work. Personal ownership of temptation and sin. Pursuing purity. Obedience to scripture. Controlling the tongue, which I have to personally admit for myself is a bit more challenging than some of the others. Being impartial. Okay? A, a, a work that comes through true saving faith is showing no partiality. This is why James is so baffled by their behavior. And lastly, fulfilling the royal law. Or basically, he reduces that down. We know that it means the whole law, but what he's talking about is actually the second of the greatest commandments, right? Loving thy neighbor as thyself. That's a work that comes through true saving faith. Loving your neighbors. Anyone who has a need. So this person that James is talking about here says he has faith, he says he believes in the basic tenets of Christianity, the basic doctrines, but the works that James has mentioned so far in his letter, those are absent from his life. That's what he's saying. And I would add, those are not, you know, those are just some of the works that were absent from his life. There are, there are other works that will be present in the life of the person who has true saving faith. Uh, how about the fruits of the Spirit? Galatians 5, 22 and 23. James's point is that this person says he believes, says he has faith, 
but his life is completely devoid of all works. And at the end of verse 14, James asks a rhetorical question. Can that faith save him? And in the original Greek language, the way that it's worded, the answer is no. Not by a long shot. Faith that has no works cannot save a person. Why? Because faith that has no works is not true saving faith. It is counterfeit faith. It is false faith. It is fake faith. MacArthur wrote, a profession of faith that is devoid of righteous works cannot save a person no matter how strong it may be. Doesn't matter how hard or consistent you profess faith, doesn't matter how loud you say, I believe in Jesus, doesn't matter. If you have no works, true saving faith always produces works in the lives of those who have it. This is the main point of this entire text, of this entire section of Scripture. That is the, the singular focus, the honing in, the laser point of James in this section. And this truth is seen not only here in James 2, 14 to 26, but it is seen throughout Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament. Take your Bibles and slide right over to Ephesians 2. Ephesians chapter 2. I just want to briefly look at verses 8 through 10. Just to give you another example. In this text, this is where Paul describes how we are saved and for what purpose. How are we saved according to this text? Verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. What is Paul telling us here? He is telling us that we are saved by grace, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That our salvation does not have anything to do with works. It is an exercise of God's sovereign grace and the conduit and connection by which we receive it and live it and enjoy it and experience it. It's, it's faith. It's believing. So we're saved by grace through faith. That's how we're saved. And here's the verse that everyone leaves off. Everyone loves to read Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. But what about verse 10? For what purpose are we saved, according to verse 10? For we are his workmanship. We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works. Which God, listen to this, which God prepared beforehand, meaning before the foundation of the world was, was set, God prepared these works beforehand, why? That we should walk in them. You see the marriage between true saving faith and works? These two things are inseparable. The person who has true saving faith, which has come to them by grace through faith, through the Holy Spirit, the person that has that, is going to walk in those works that God created for them to walk in. Those works are there. And we've already described what some of them are like. Isn't that an amazing passage? Remember that passage, Romans 2, 8 through 10. How we're saved and for the purpose. 
Saved by grace through faith for the purpose of walking in works. What does that tell us? True saving faith is faith that what? Works. It's so clear. It's so lucidly clear here and throughout Scripture. We're on a little bit of a timeline, so. And like James does in this text that we're looking at, the Apostle Paul also warned against a kind of faith that produces no works. He did this in Romans chapter 2, verse 13, where he said, For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Now, you might be thinking, whoa, we're talking about justification now? It sounds as though Paul is saying that people are justified. What does it mean to be justified? To be declared righteous by God? It sounds as though Paul is saying that people are going to be justified by what they do, but that is not what he meant here. People misinterpret his words. They misinterpret James's words in our text all the time. The Roman Catholic Church has done this for, for eons. It promotes a the doctrine of dual justification, justification through faith plus works. That's a, a big thing for the Roman Catholic Church. I'm not trying to pick on Roman Catholics. I'm just trying to say this is what they teach. This is what they believe. Bible-believing Protestants, however, promote single justification, justification through faith alone. Why? Because that's what we believe the Bible teaches so clear. What Paul is teaching in Romans chapter 2, verse 13, is that full-orbed faith is what justifies a person before God. Full-orbed faith is faith that hears the word, believes the word, and does the word. That's true saving faith. And this is precisely what Paul was pointing to in Romans 2.13. It's precisely what James is pointing to in verses 21 through 26. We're talking about full-orbed faith, true saving faith. And what is it again? It's a faith that works. That's what we're talking about. True saving faith is full-orbed faith. It's works. It's faith putting out and creating works. It's faith that works. It's by, according to Scripture, it's the only faith that actually saves. All others, types of quote-unquote faith, are just counterfeits. MacArthur again... He says, a person who professes Christ, but who does not live a Christ-honoring, Christ-obeying life, is a fraud. I mean, it just can't get any clearer than that. In the remaining verses, James gives three examples which further illustrate his main point that true saving faith always produces works in the lives of those who have it. But before we examine those examples, we must first look at an analogy or the analogy in verses 15 to 17. This is an analogy that, that James gave. He says, if a, a brother or, or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warmed and filled, without giving them the, the things needed for the body, he says, what good is that? And then he says, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is what? Dead. In this analogy, James likens faith without works to dead compassion. The analogy is, is pretty simple. It goes like this. Let's say that a person from the congregation James wrote to, because he says, if one of you did this, the person from the congregation he wrote to were to come across a brother or sister who is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food. Firstly, before we really get into this, what type of person is, is James describing here? He's describing a poor person, one who lacks the, 
the basic daily essentials, clothing and food. Who did this congregation mistreat? The poor, verses 2 through 4. I love that, that James actually uses examples from their own buffoonery. He's literally calling them out on something that they're doing. He's made up this, this analogy here, but it's apropos. It's, it comes right out of what these people were doing. And so when this person from this congregation sees this poor person, this poor brother or sister, what does he do? He wishes them well, but he fails to provide what they need for body and belly. He speaks words of compassion, but has no acts of compassion. Compassion without acts is dead compassion. When Jesus saw a large hungry crowd, he was filled with compassion. How did he respond? Well, I hope you're going to be okay there, Fred, as you make your way out into the wilderness. May God go with you. Apparently, Jesus has an English accent. No, that's not at all what he did. No, he, he fed them spiritually the word of God. And guess what? He fed them physically with what? Loaves and fishes. Mark 6, 34 to 44. In the same, this is James's point, in the same way that compassion without acts is dead compassion, faith without works is dead faith. That's the analogy he's making. Now let's move to the first example. The first example is himself. The example of James, the author, verses 18 to 20. And he says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. And then James says, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder, exclamation point. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? So James anticipates that someone in his audience, or maybe a future reader, will actually object to his teaching and try to defend those who have faith with no works. The argument this person makes is simple. There are people in the church who focus on faith, and there are people in the church who focus on works. Now, this scenario that this person is weaving or spinning here is, is thoroughly accurate. There are people in the church even today, who some who focus greatly on faith and bolstering and building faith. And then there's, there's another group that's focused on doing works. That is prevalent today, but it is also thoroughly unbiblical, this idea. I think what, what this person here that James is putting before us in the text, what this person is attempting to do here is justify the 80-20 rule, where 80% of the parishioners kick back and focus on their faith while the remaining 20% do all the work. Now, this statistic is not true at RHC. It's in the reverse. Praise God. But when I was at Big Valley, and this is not to sling hash at Big Valley, it's a great church in so many ways, that rule was in effect. And that was a constant prayer request by the pastors to get more of the quote-unquote people of God engaged in works. This is a real problem in many, many churches, this 80-20 rule. And James has stated repeatedly already in this text in a number of different ways that true saving faith always produces works in the lives of those who have it. What does that say about the inactive 
Well, someone might object to what I'm saying here, and they, they could say something like, well, we don't know what these people are doing outside of our gatherings. We don't know what they're doing outside of our ministries. Maybe they have works out there, and we just don't see them doing the works and, and doing the kinds of things that true saving faith would cause someone to do. I mean, that's a, a reasonable objection. But I'll tell you, after years of pastoral ministry, I've come to the conclusion that if a person has no works when the church is gathered, they usually have no works when the church is scattered. Again, one might say, well, maybe they don't have outward works when the church is gathered, but they have inward works, like, you know, like the steady trust in God. Well, this could absolutely be true, but how does that square with the analogy James gave in verses 15 and 17? Did he use an inward works analogy? Of course not. He used an outward works analogy, caring for a brother or sister who is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food. Since this congregation obviously lacked some of the outward works of true saving faith, that is what James is focused on in this text. He's not talking about inward fruits and inward works. He's talking about outward works, outward manifestations of true saving faith. These people were showing partiality and, 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 and treating the rich very well while treating the poor very poorly. That's an outward thing. So you can't really use the inward works argument here. James is talking about what you can visibly see coming through the life of a person who has true Saving faith. That's what he's talking about. He's not focused on inward stuff. And after presenting this objection here, you know, well, you got faith. I got works or vice versa. That happens in the church. Some of us have faith and some of us do the works. After presenting this objection, James basically explodes. There's an explosion in the Greek here. He explodes. And I don't think this person exists. I think he's making it up for the point, but he explodes at his own example. You, you, you can't possibly think or believe that it's right, that some would just have faith and some would have works. What's he arguing? True saving faith has works. And so he, he kind of melts down. He blows up. And he sarcastically challenges this objector to show his faith apart from works. He basically corners the objector. Oh, really? You think that it's possible to have faith without works, and some people in the church have faith and others have works, and blah, blah, blah. You think that's possible? Well, then why don't you go ahead and show me your faith without your works? Uh, newsflash, this cannot be done. Why? Because there is no such thing as faith without works. He basically tells the objector, I want you to do the impossible. This person can't meet this challenge. They can't show the legitimacy of their faith because they don't have works. To be quite honest with you, the fact that they'd have to be questioned about whether they have true saving faith or not because of the absence of works is very troubling. No one should ever look at us and wonder if we have true saving faith because our lives are devoid of good works. Never. That should never be the case. It should be so apparent. We are to let our light shine before men. What? Through our good works, Matthew chapter 5, so that they would glorify our Father who is in heaven. This person just can't meet the challenge. They can't do it. They can't prove their faith without the works. It can't happen. Why? Because faith without works is dead. Or if you're Scottish, deed. All this person could do here at this point, all this person could do at this point is just run his or her mouth and talk about faith and, and talk about tenets and talk about doctrines and talk about election and, and all of these wonderful things and talk about theology, all great things. That's all they can do is recite from memory what they know and understand of the Bible. That's all they can do. They have nothing to show. All they can do is speak. And yet James, on the other hand, could easily meet the challenge. Why? Because his faith had works. You show me your faith apart from works, and I'll show you my faith through my works. 
Isn't this letter an example of it for him? Is this letter obviously inspired by the Holy Spirit? Is it not a fruit that the Spirit brought forth through James, not to mention a revelation from God? This letter is evidence that James had true saving faith. James could have easily said, well, why don't you just uh, read the letter again? Just consider the logic that James uses here. If a person says he has faith but cannot show it through works, he fails the challenge. But if a person says he has faith and he can show it through works, he meets the challenge. He destroys the challenge. He decimates the, ch the challenge goes bye-bye. In verse 19, James compares those, and this is where he gets really intense. He's already super, super intense, more intense than me, probably sweating more than I am at this point. This is big for him. He's really bring, you know, trying to bring these points home because I don't think these people understand. And in verse 19, he literally compares those who say they have faith but have no works to demons. The demons believe God exists, and they shudder. Why do they shudder? Because of his awesome power and devastating judgment. What did Legion do when confronted by Jesus? With a shriek, he screamed, Why are you interfering with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In the name of God, I beg you, don't torture me. This is... This is the response of a multitude of demons in a man. And this, these, these demons represented by maybe this one figurehead legion, or maybe that's the name of all the demons together, it just screams out at Jesus in pure terror not to be judged and destroyed in that very moment. Mark 5, 6, and 7. The demons believe that God exists, but they shudder. The demons believe in God, and yet they do not obey God, and they do not have works. Those who say they have faith but have no works are like the demons in that regard. They say they believe in God, but they do not obey God, and they have no works. There is, in the text, a major difference between the demons and those who make these false claims. What is it, according to James? At least the demons shudder. You won't see any shuddering by those who say they have faith and have no works. No, what you'll see with them is a lot of boasting and a lot of pride and a lot of defending against you trying to reach them with the true gospel. That's what you'll see. The Pharisees are a wonderful example of this. The person who has this kind of false faith is a very much, how dare you say these things to me kind of person. There's no shuddering. They don't fear God. They think they know God. They think they're saved by God. And they are the very people in which Jesus on the last day will say, away from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you but we believed in your name and we even did some things in your name. Away from me, I never knew you. Yeah, what you get from these people is not shuddering. You get tons of self-righteousness, unwavering stubbornness, and zero fear of God. Believe me, I've ministered to people like this. I've ministered to them throughout my pastorate. The, the hardest person in the world to reach is that person because they think they already have what they need and they won't be persuaded. Now, I, I know that all things are possible in Christ. I know that with all things, all, all things are possible in God. And I know that God can crack those nuts and we pray for that. But I've seen the reverse of it so many times it's not even funny. In verse 20, James asks another rhetorical question. He says, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? <laughs> I 
James was more than happy to oblige this person and prove that person's utter foolishness for believing that faith can exist apart from works. So what does he do? He chooses two individuals from the Old Testament who were known for having what? Faith that works. Now we move to example two, the example of Abraham. We see this in verses 21 through 24. He says, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. Verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not faith alone. James begins by identifying Abraham as our father. This term does not refer to race. It doesn't refer to physical lineage. It has to do with Abraham's faith and the spiritual lineage that is associated with him. He might be borrowing from, or may have been borrowing from Paul, who described Abraham as the father of all who believe. Romans 4.11 Every true believer, every person who possesses true saving faith is of the spiritual lineage of Abraham. They are the true seed of Abraham. In other words, if we have true saving faith, we are Abraham's spiritual descendants. James makes the point that our father Abraham was justified by works when he obeyed God by taking his you know, son Isaac up to Mount Moriah to offer him on the altar. The phrase justified by works has spun way too many people out all throughout history. It's led to false doctrines, one that I already identified, dual justification. The word justified is dikaio in Greek and it means to be declared righteous. That is the classic meaning of the word. The Bible, however, teaches very clearly that people are justified or declared righteous by faith and not by works. Genesis 15.6, Habakkuk 2.4, Romans 3.28, and chapter 5, verse 1, Galatians 2.16, and chapter 3, verse 24. All of these references should be in your reference sheet. If this is true... If there is a, a, a James is saying that, you know, we're justified by works in a sense here, and, and, and I know what he actually means, but if that were true, would James actually be contradicting other scriptures here? No. Well, the reason why there's no contradiction here, he's still holding to true orthodoxy. The reason is because he wasn't actually pointing to the justification that occurs between God and man in verse 21. He's pointing to something else. And he kind of switches back and forth here, and that's why you got to be careful. Remember, he is using Abraham as an example of faith and works to prove his main point to an objector. The justification that he is pointing to here is therefore associated with men and not God. Abraham was justified before men when he offered up Isaac on the altar. In other words, Abraham proved to men that he had true saving faith through works. The work being what? The taking of his son up onto Moriah. And you might be thinking, well, we're not required to prove our faith before men. Oh, it's not a requirement. We don't need to seek to be justified by men at all. We don't need for men to declare us righteous or any of that. But as James is laboring to make the point, if we say we have faith, we ought to be able to prove it through what we're doing. If somebody hears your testimony, you talk about how you believe in Jesus Christ, and then you're backing that up with charitable works and fruitful works and all of that, that person is made to believe in a greater sense that you have the real deal. That's what it means to be justified before men. It means to be proven. 
That's what he's talking about. The authenticity of one's faith is evidenced more through what we do than what we say. That makes sense? Today, with all this grace, 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 focus and emphasis, any sort of works or anything are now are called legalism. I've been called a Pharisee for challenging Christians for living so loose. But they always claim faith and grace and faith and grace. We, we show forth the reality of true saving faith through, yes, what we say, but more, through, more so through what we do. And that is the idea of letting our light shine before men. That's what he's talking about here. That is the very essence of this text. I don't know if anyone else was watching other than, Abraham, uh, other than Isaac on that moment and, 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 a, and a goat that was stuck in the thicket. I don't know if there were any other witnesses. But when he went up there, when he, this man of faith went up there and obeyed God, it showed the world that he had true saving faith because he was in obedience and doing the work he was called to do. That makes sense? The authenticity of one's faith is evidenced more through what we do than what we say. This is certainly true of Abraham. And that is why James used him as an example. The phrase, you see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, shows the marriage, again, between faith and works. And it proves James's main point, that true saving faith always produces works in the lives of those who have it. I love how... James said Abraham's faith was completed by his works. You get the idea there that faith without works is what? Incomplete faith. But faith that produces works is what? Complete faith. James is talking about full-orbed faith. Full-orbed faith is faith that hears the word, believes the word, and does the Word. It is faith that works. James switches from describing justification before men to justification by God. Abraham believed God and his belief proved to be true through works. He had full orb faith which resulted in what? Justification by God. He says it like this, it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. Full-orbed faith is the only faith that brings justification by God. Think about that. The only kind of faith that God justifies a person for is a faith that works. It's not just a belief. It's a belief that works. It's a belief that produces works. I think today people would say, well, you're justified solely, entirely upon what you believe. That is true, but that belief better have works. Because if it doesn't, then it's not true saving faith. Am I yelling? I feel like I'm, I'm like going I'm to melt down. This is stuff that I have been preaching for years. Mostly in little counseling sessions and things, and it's like, it just, it just, it doesn't get through to some people. And believe me, I'm not perfect at this. You don't even have to be perfect at it. There's no such thing as perfection at it. It's just believing and having through that faith and that relationship with Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit in you, it, it, it comes right out of you and through you. And yet people think, no, I can just believe and I'm good. No. No. Full-orbed faith is the only faith that brings justification by God. If our faith is not full-orbed, if it does not produce works, we are not justified. This is the warning James issued in verse 24. 
what are we if we are not justified? We are still unrighteous. And guess what? The unrighteous do not inherit the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. If we haven't been justified because we don't have true saving faith, we're still in our sins, man. We're still unrighteous before God. That's why this is so, but this is life and death here, people. And there's so much confusion about this issue. Let's move to the third and final example. Number three, the example of Rahab, verses 25 through 26. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? He says this in 26, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. I find it very interesting that of all the faithful saints throughout all of biblical history that that James focuses on Rahab, a prostitute. To, to, To show forth how true saving faith has faith and works. He chooses Rahab, the prostitute, and prostitution was ranked pretty, pretty low in the ancient world, maybe slightly higher than a tax collector. James may have chose her to further shame his objector. It's as if he's saying, you believe that faith without works is true saving faith? Not even Rahab the prostitute had that view. Dummy. Rahab was also an innkeeper in Jericho, the ancient city of Jericho. You remember the one where the walls fell down? Sunday school lesson for kids. Kind of sappy. When Joshua sent men into the city to spy it out, her inn, the inn of Rahab, her inn, was a logical place to go because it was situated on the city wall instead of deep in the city where it would have been far more dangerous for these spies. And when the king somehow, the king of Jericho, learned of the presence of these spies, he sends officials to Rahab's house to arrest them. But she falsely reported that the spies had left the city just before dark. She had hidden the two men behind stacks of flax on her roof. When the officials left, they came and questioned her, and she turned them away, and they went off and searched in the night somewhere out, maybe in the wilderness or somewhere. I don't know where the officials went, but they left Rahab's inn. And she then tells the spies that she had hidden, that she had heard about their God, and how terror had come over her and her people. They had heard and she had heard about how he split the Red Sea. Which was not like Modesto Reservoir and all these things, these buffoons try to make it look like it was just, you know, it was only about two feet deep. It's a sea. They had heard about this God of theirs, how he had split the Red Sea, how he had destroyed all of the Israelites' enemies. She even referred to their God as the Lord and God in heaven above and on earth beneath, which is what? A profession of faith. Joshua 2, 1 through 11. Rahab had faith. She believed in the God of Israel and called him Lord, which shows what? Submission. And guess what? She also had works. She hid the spies. Rahab had faith and works, which is full-orbed faith, the only acceptable faith to God, the only faith 
that justifies. Lastly, in verse 26, James likens dead faith, faith without works, to a body without a spirit. Both are useless, devoid of any life-giving power. Closing. James has taught us what true saving faith is like. It is faith that produces works. He has taught us what false dead faith is like. It is faith without works. He has taught us how a person is justified by God by faith that works or full-orbed faith. What he hasn't taught us in this phenomenal text is where true saving faith comes from or whom it must be in, the object of our faith. He hasn't done this, have you noticed? In fact, he doesn't do this in his entire letter. He does not teach us about the origin of true saving faith, nor does he teach us about the object of true saving faith. And the absence of these things is basically what spun Martin Luther out for a number of years, and this is why he called the epistle of James the epistle of straw. Now, he changed his position later in life. Early on, though, he didn't have a, whole, a high view of James because those things, he totally agreed with chapter 2, but it saddened him that the origin and object were left out of the entire letter, which is a bit mysterious. Why did James leave out the origin and object of true saving faith? I mean, you've just built a case for faith that works. Why wouldn't you not talk about where true saving faith comes from? Why would you not talk about the object? I certainly would aim for that. I think it would be bad to leave people in this idea of works without talking about the one who actually did the works for us that, so that we could do any works. Why did he leave it out? Why did he leave these things out? I don't know. Was he ignorant of such truths? No. He clearly understood them because if he had been ignorant of them, he would not have been a pastor or apostle. If you're going to be a pastor in a church and you can't be in a apostle today, they're gone, but if you were either one, you had to understand the origin and object of faith. And you had to understand the things that James talked about here, about how faith is a faith that works. You had to have a knowledge of these things. I think the reason why James left them out is because James's audience understood such truths. What they needed to be reminded of was how to live as Christians. And this is why James focuses entirely on Christian living and born-again behavior and these sorts of things. This is why he did not focus on the origin and object of faith. He focused on living it out. So the question is, where does true saving faith come from? Does it come from us? No. The only thing sinners produce is sin doesn't originate in us. I remember a pastor I served with believed it was in us, and he called it the divine spark. Sounds really cool in New Age. I just can't find it in the Bible. True saving faith doesn't come from within us. It comes from the outside. It comes from God as a gracious gift, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. It is by grace through faith that you are saved. And this is not of your works. It is the gift of God. And how is this wonderful, precious gift of true saving faith given? It is delivered by the Holy Spirit who regenerates and creates in us a new heart and loving disposition toward God. And he implants the gifts of faith and repentance in that person at that moment of regeneration. John 3, 3 through 8, Ephesians 2, 1 through 7, 2 Timothy 2, 25. How many of you know and knew that repentance is not something that begins with us either? It's actually a gift that's granted and given by God as well. Faith and repentance are 
gracious, divine gifts that are given. That moment that the Spirit comes in and regenerates the recipient has become a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5.17, and he or she begins to believe and turn from sin. They exhibit and will continue to exhibit faith that works. True saving faith. What about the object of true saving faith? In what or in whom are we to believe? Where will this gracious, um, God-given gift of true saving faith, what will it point us to? Where do we fix our faith? Where do we fix our trust? On what or in whom? That's the object. Are we to fix ourselves believing in the law of God? No. No one will be justified by the law, Romans 3.20. The law has a purpose in our lives, but it's not for salvation. Are we to believe in God? Well, some of you would say, well, hallelujah, yes. Well, it depends on what you mean by God. Because the demons believe in God. Do they have true saving faith? No. Mormons, Muslims, Jehovah Witnesses, and Jews believe in God. Do they have true saving faith? No. The object of true saving faith is God, but not the gods of those religions or a God of our imagination. It is the God of the Bible, and more specifically, God the Son. The object of true saving faith is the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Acts 4.12 The origin of true saving faith is God. The object is God in Christ. How can we know if we have been given true saving faith? How do we know if we possess it? How do we know if we have it? Do we have the Holy Spirit? And by the way, James doesn't even talk about the Holy Spirit. The word spirit appears two times in his letter, and he's not talking about the Holy Spirit. That's another interesting thing. But a great question to ask yourself is, do you have the Holy Spirit? Have you been regenerated? Are you a new creation with a new loving dis disposition toward God? Have you repented of your unbelief? Do you believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? Are you trusting in His person and work alone for your salvation? But it doesn't end there. Does your faith have works? Do we repent of sin? Do we obey the Word of God? Do we fulfill the royal law? If we say yes to these things, the answer is clear. We have been given true saving faith. If we merely believe but have no works, our faith is dead. I'll end with one of my favorite quotes from Martin Luther. It's in your bulletin. I love what Luther said 500 years ago. He says this, It is true that we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. Does your faith work? Does your faith produce works? Inner works? Outward works? Does it? If you say you believe but don't have works, James has told us so clearly in the text what that means. It means you have dead faith. You need true saving faith. Guess what? There's no divine spark. You can't conjure this up within you and then start to exercise it. You've got to fall prostrate on your face 
and ask God for mercy and ask him to graciously grant it. He's the only one who can give it. And Jesus said, those who come to him, he will never turn away. May not be something that you have or can come up with. It's something that he has and it's something that he gives. But you are responsible. You must cry out to him. In fact, if you cry out to him, it's obvious that his grace is already working in your life because no one cries out to him, not unless God is already working in their life. Cry out to him. Call upon his name. Call upon the name of Jesus. Ask him to give you true saving faith. Ask him to give you the Holy Spirit, true saving faith. Ask him to make you a repentant person. Ask him to make you a new person. He will surely do it. He will surely do it.